University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. Take a look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 1. Now I want you to consider some of the greatest traitors in history. The first one that comes to mind to me is Lando Calrissian, who betrayed Han Solo in order to make sure that the Cloud City was protected. Fredo Corleone betrayed the Godfather. I know it was you, Fredo. Okay, if you didn't get that reference, leave worship right now and go rent the Godfather somewhere and watch it. Robert Ford, in an act of jealousy and fear, betrayed Jesse James, only to be regarded as history's biggest coward. Of course, we know the acts of Benedict Arnold famously did two things. One, he tried to... Uh, come up with a unique way for us to have our eggs, uh, and the other was that he tried to surrender West Point to the British. I was referring to Eggs Benedict, by the way, for this. Was a little slow in the ticker this morning. Of course, uh, the phrase that reminds us of one of Rome's most famous deaths, et tu brute. This morning, we're going to talk about traitors. And when history thinks of traitors, the number one person comes to mind is Judas Iscariot. Of course, he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and a kiss that sealed his fate. But what if I told you that Judas wasn't the only betrayer in the act of the passion? What if I told you that Peter betrayed Jesus in an equally disgusting way? The context of our passage this morning as we're working through this series of Lent is we're here in Jerusalem. Jesus has amassed a following He's brought the religious leaders, uh, he's brought the religious leaders' blood pressure to a boil, and a plot is put into action to put this man to death. We're going to pick up in chapter 22, verse 1, but we're going to do a little um, hopscotch this morning. We're going to pick up in the narrative, put it down, and pick up in another place. But all of it is going to begin with uh, Judas' act of betrayal, leading us all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. So Luke chapter 22, verse 1. Ron, is my, am I on here? I can't do my wandering, my, my scripture wandering, if this isn't on. I accidentally cut it off. That's all my bad. Sorry. Now you get to see how the sausage is made in worship. Okay. Everybody wants to blame the sound guy, but it's usually the pastor's fault. So, Luke chapter 22, verse 1. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priest and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when the crowd wasn't present. Skip down to verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked you to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail you, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, 
I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Verse 54 says this. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him to the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you are talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned straight and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And when he went outside and wept bitterly. So what is the profile of a rat and a coward? Judas, like many of the other disciples, was chosen by Jesus to be one of the core. Jesus would have held Judas in high regard. In fact, the Gospels tell us that Judas is a friend of Jesus, the only disciple labeled in such a way. Jesus put so much trust in Judas. It was said that he was the money keeper for the group. Yet several times, Judas has showed us a tendency towards materialism and selfishness. He flipped out when this woman used expensive perfume to anoint Jesus' feet. His reasoning was that she could have sold the perfume and gave it to their cause. Peter, also known as Simon, was a simple fisherman from Galilee. He first steps into the scene in the Gospel of Luke after Jesus heals his mother-in-law. He is one of the first to follow Jesus. His brother Andrew is the first. Peter's name pops up more often in the Gospels, mainly because he became one of the early pillars of the church. Yet these guys had stellar profiles when it comes to following Jesus up to this point. And so the question we have to begin to consider is, what is their motives for their betrayal? With Judas, we really don't know why he betrayed Jesus. It's difficult to have a non-biased perspective from the Gospels because every time Judas' name is brought up in the Gospels, it's followed with the one who betrayed Jesus or the betrayer. So it's not like the Gospel writers are going to speak of him favorably. Of course, to the most common peasant like Judas, 30 pieces of silver would have been a lot of money. It would have been the equivalent of at least one month's worth of wages. But why? Why would he betray Jesus, especially to the religious leaders? Was he trying to sacrifice all that Jesus had done right here at the pinnacle moment? Some biblical scholars have tried to argue that Judas was trying to force Jesus' hand, force him to fulfill what he thought the Messiah was supposed to be and to do, which was call down a legion of angels to defeat the Romans and to restore Israel back to its glory. Perhaps Judas' kiss on Jesus might have meant, I once believed in you, I loved you, and you betrayed me, Jesus You promised that you would bring a kingdom here on earth, and this is all unraveling. 
Because you keep talking about how you must die for the kingdom. All my hopes, all my dreams are failing here with this kiss. And then there's Peter. Peter is one of the disciples who shows up most within the Gospels. He left his family and his business to follow Jesus. This is the guy that hopped out of the boat in the middle of a raging storm to walk out to Jesus. Peter chose to be one of the three that saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain where Moses and Elijah show up. Peter's act of betrayal is equally puzzling. If anything, it is an act of self-preservation. He was driven by fear and unfaithfulness. Maybe the thought running through his head is, if Jesus is arrested and they're going to kill him, was the last three years, the teachings, the miracles, this talk of the kingdom coming, was it all for nothing? So he put much distance between himself and Jesus. And these two acts of betrayal will will end with two totally different outcomes. Peter's act will lead to repentance and forgiveness and a mantle of leadership within the church. Judas' act will lead to suicide, hanging himself on a tree outside of Jerusalem and his name forever associated with infamy. For example, Dante Alighieri in his famous work Inferno puts Judas at the lowest ring of hell, head first into Lucifer's mouth, being eternally chewed by Satan but never consumed. That sounds really exciting. History paints the face of the devil on Judas Iscariot. Now, in 1968, the Rolling Stones released a single, Sympathy for the Devil, and it was on the Beggar's Banquet album. And this song has been widely scrutinized by, by many Christians, but it stands out as the number 32 of their 500 songs. 32 out of 500 Now, personally, I think Ruby Tuesday is the best Rolling Stones songs. Hands down, we can get an argument afterwards about all this. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards wrote this song as a first-person narrative of the devil throughout history, and it says that, that the devil was there as Jesus was betrayed, there when Pilate washed his hands clean of Jesus. He was there when the Bolsheviks revolted, killing the Russian royal family. He was there when the Nazis reigned with chaos. He was there when JFK was assassinated. But the song begs the question, can we have a little sympathy for the devil? Because in reality, it was he and us that have caused hell on earth. It's an invitation for us to see that our hands are filled with blood as well. So maybe as we consider this narrative of Peter and Judas, may we have a little sympathy for them. The reason being that maybe we see ourselves in either one of them. As one author put it, societies have always reserved their harshest punishment for those who commit some acts of betrayal. It's a sin against the trust that is critical to maintaining relationships between two people or among a community. Betrayal shatters the fragile bonds that hold us together, and when we lose our ability to live together, we lose our ability to truly be human. That is why betrayal destroys marriages and families and churches and communities. We've always had a little bit of Judas within us. Could it be the reason that we show betrayers so little compassion is that we are afraid that the Judas chromosome might show up in us? We hate the thought that we might be culpable of betraying trust. Do we see Judas within us?
And this is exactly where I want us to steer our conversation this morning. Because often we find that we are right there with these two. At some point, this might sound offensive, but how often do we betray Jesus? I mean, it's usually not in obvious and literal ways, like denying we know his very existence as he's being arrested and crucified. But how often have we chosen the one who calls us to humility and service? We have chosen selfishness and a broken path. We could, start live, uh, we could start with the whole idea of loving our neighbors and our enemies and move past that, how often we put our needs before other people's needs. We skip down to judgment of other people, slide quickly into our inability to tame our tongue from gossip and filthy language and land chin deep in being a people who are called to gentleness and meekness and joy and peace and grace. How often we are a people filled with hatred and judgment and a lack of forgiveness. Let's not talk about the fact that Jesus invites us to care for the sick and the poor and the imprisoned and the outcasts. But how often do we betray Jesus when that doesn't fit into our socio-political and economic views? When we have the opportunity to do great things for the kingdom of God, how often do we shrink back in fear and selfishness? And I wonder if we counted Will we lose count of the number of times we, in fact, have betrayed Jesus? Never the fact that Jesus told us in Matthew 10, 32 through 33, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. I wonder how many times we have confessed Jesus as Lord only to enthrone ourselves as the true lords of our life. You see, we see a little bit of Peter and Judas within us, if we're honest. What happens when Jesus stands between us and our self-interest? What happens when Jesus stands between us and our socio-political and economic views? What happens when Jesus stands between us and our American dreams? Do you remember the parable of the prodigal sons? It, it tells the story of a father who lets his youngest son choose to reject home, to take his inheritance, and to run off to this distant land. And after everything was lost and all hope had gone out, the son decides that he would return home and be a slave in his father's estate. But this is a beautiful story because we learn that the father won't even hear his son's confession. He simply overwhelms his son with compassion and grace and mercy. But the story doesn't end there. It's actually the story of the prodigal sons. Because we learn there is an older brother who stayed there, who remained in the estate, who was lost, not in fleeting foreign countries, but in entitlement, in judgment, in arrogance. This son cannot understand why his father would take back this worthless boy whom he once called brother. You see, the father responds to the eldest son with hope and joy and insight and compassion. Two acts of betrayal against the father, yet the father responds with grace. You see, that is the hope of the Gospels. The hope of Luke chapter 22 is not that Judas and Peter are lost in their demise, lost in their betrayal. It is a story of grace and mercy of God. 
It's a story that comes crashing into view that despite their betrayal, God's grace remains stronger and more transcendent than their act of betrayal. You see, this text tells us something beautiful about the nature of Jesus. At his very core, Jesus is a servant. Jesus is a lover of God's people. Jesus strives to forgive and to restore. And these very pages that, that, that wretch within our hearts, we see that God takes our acts of betrayal and turns them into something beautiful. If we rewind our text, John tells us that before this act of betrayal, before this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, that Jesus does something that it says is to the full extent of his love. Now think about this. To this point in the Gospels, Jesus has healed the sick. He's cast out demons. He's literally resurrected a little boy and a little girl. He has turned our perspective of the world right side up. But John says he showed them the full extent of his love. And what did he do? It says that Jesus got down on his hands and knees and began to wash the feet of the disciples. The Son of God. And all of his power and all of his glory devoted himself to washing the dirty and grimy and disgusting feet of these men. He washed Thomas' feet, who would doubt his resurrection. He would wash the feet of James and John, the sons of Debedee, who so self-righteously fought to sit at the right hand of Jesus in heaven. And you know what else's feet he washed? He washed Peter's feet, knowing the act of betrayal. And he also washed every single dirty inch of Judas Iscariot's feet. You see, Jesus shows us that the grace of God serves even the vilest. This is an act of hospitality. It's an act of love and service. Jesus shows us that the grace of God extends hospitality even to backstabbers. Maybe this is an overwhelming nature of Jesus that we need to to soak in this morning. An act for 30 pieces of silver, an act of self-preservation are covered up by the fact that Jesus in this moment shows us what it really means to love your enemies, to care for those who persecute you and backstab you. And Jesus also shows us the full extent of God's forgiveness by restoring Peter back into the fold. It's unfortunate for us because Judas is such a tragic figure. Judas took his own life, but I imagine, and this is not taking royalties with Scripture, that Jesus would have restored even Judas back into the fold. That shows us the compassion of God. It shows us the capacity of forgiveness and love and hope. It shows us that God can take broken things, marred things, evil things, and turn them into something wonderful and beautiful. It shows us that God's desire is for us to experience the full inclusion of God. Do you feel God's presence in your life? Do you feel full inclusion and forgiveness? This winter, I read a fascinating book. It was entitled Rising Out of Hatred. And it tells the story of Derek Black, who was the son of the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, who once was the heir apparent of the white nationalist movement. Growing up, he made speeches and hosted radio shows and started websites called Kids Stormfront. It was the children's version of the website his father started. 
And it was only after he began to attend a, a, a new college in Florida that Derek Black began to question his points of view. Previously, he had been homeschooled, but all of a sudden he was exposed to new people with new views, including Jewish students and African-American students that he had never interacted with before. Black's new friends invited him over for Shabbat dinners week after week, despite the fact that he spewed so much hatred and racism out of his mouth. Gradually, he began to rethink his views. After soul-searching, Derek Black renounced the white nationalist movement. He left the movement. He was ostracized by his family. He changed his name so he would have no association with it. He wrote, and now I look back on it, and I said things that I tried to energize racist ideas and get people to more, be more explicit about it. And then people who listened to what I believed, some who committed horrible acts of violence against others. And what is my culpability and responsibility for these things as they went out into the world? I can't take them back. And the moral weight of this is more difficult than I can handle. You see, as we reflect on the story of Judas and Peter, what we see from Jesus is an invitation into transformation. The word repentance from Scripture literally means change your way of thinking and living. And this is the invitation we see within Luke chapter 22. It's not a story of condemnation and damnation and judgment. It's a story of restoration. It's a story of transformation, empowered and emboldened by God's love for each of us. That God can take a man like Peter and change his life. That God can take a story like Judas and turn it into something beautiful. May we contemplate and consider the work that Jesus needs to do within our lives. Not an act of condemnation, not an act of eternal judgment, but an act of overwhelming grace and mercy. But this story also challenges us for us to consider our faithfulness to Jesus, our faithfulness to the way of Jesus. As we face out on a worldview and a political view and an economic view and a social view, all these things pulling us to all the corners of the world, may we consider that we are called to see and live into a Jesus worldview. One that calls us to love and care and to forgive and to restore and to bring hope and joy and peace to all of the world. And I think the most challenging aspect of this text this morning is it challenges us to be more gracious and be more forgiving. As we compare our acts of betrayal against Jesus, may we contemplate the times that people have broken our heart and stabbed us in the back and gossiped behind closed doors and done their best to ruin our lives and our families and our careers and our friendships. May we consider the ultimate nature of God's love for us. That a God can take two acts of betrayal and turn it into something world-altering. May the grace and forgiveness of God seep deep within our lives that we might become a people of restoration.